Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. In today's episode, my guest talks about starting analytics and how it allows companies to humanize their experience with customers, particularly in the B2B space, We went on to discuss how this really applies to the B2B world. So listen up to this. My next guest has a long history in B2B sales. He lectures at University of Buckingham on strategy and proposition development and is a board member for two SaaS companies. He is CEO of Anthrolytics a company that combines data and behavioral science to predict what customers will do next and why. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Jonathan Hawkins. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Jonathan Hawkins. Hi, great to meet you, Janice. How are you doing? All right. Really good, really good. And I'm so interested to find out about Anthrolytics. Tell me more. Lovely. So we... um... I mean, in, in its simplest form, what we do is, and it's it, it can sound quite scary, but it's really not. So we, we combine data and behavioral science to predict what a customer is going to do next and why. Um, now, the, the the reason we do that is that consumer thinking has changed a lot over the last few years. I mean, obviously, we've had a huge upheavals in sort of socio-political, socio-economic, and of course, pandemic, um, which has led consumers really, if you look at any of the research, to wanting to be treated empathetically by customer by companies i.e you know where are we today how do you recognize me as an individual how do you treat me in relation to the way i want to be treated and the way i feel and so what we do is we provide um organizations the ability to be empathetic at scale and indeed we can also do that we're just working on a new version which will do that for hr as well and so from a consumer perspective you really you, 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 the idea being you were not going to be bombarded with please buy more, please buy more if you're angry with the company or you're ambivalent. Um, but companies will have the ability to say, okay, well, we think Janice is actually in a great place with us in our her relationship with us and has the propensity to buy more. So we're going to market to Janice. Jonathan, we think is quite angry. So actually, we're going to try and address the root cause of that. <clears throat> And the result for consumers, obviously, is that they're treated far better. And the result for organizations is that their marketing spend and the yields on that spend go up substantially. Um, Did it for a very major U.S. organization who saw marketing revenues increase by 18 percent. But also you can understand thresholds as people are moving towards churn positions. So before you or I might be thinking about churn, what the, what the platform will actually do is say, okay, well, Jonathan and Janice are moving towards a point where they're going to reach a threshold at a speed, which means they're likely to churn. So companies can now intervene proactively, address the root cause and reduce churn. And again, in the same instance, they saw churn reduced by 11% in a retail environment. So, you know, I think we're on something. We're a very new organization. We we actually set up um, 
set up this year, um, but certainly traction's been very, very strong. Um, and look, we, we've got a lot of experience in this space. You know, we know the customer experience space very well. Uh, very well. So whilst uh, whilst the company's new, I think uh, as you can probably see by my hair. You know, experience-wise, we know uh, <laughs> we know our way, our way around platforms and uh, and SaaS companies and the CX space. So this is this is interesting. What is uh, companies have a lot of data, but they often don't mm -hmm. know how to interpret it. So this right. is what you're doing for them, giving them the real information that, that they need to action and have a bigger impact. But yeah. what particularly are you looking at in the data? What are, what are the, your sources of, of data that gives you that, that those insights? Sure. So, so the, the, way, the way we start is, I mean, of course, no platform in the world can predict what somebody does without knowing what they think at some point, right? So, so the way you start this process is you take a, a, a representative sample of data, um, and we've all filled in surveys, we've all called contact centers, had our calls recorded, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of customer verbatims that every major organization has. So we take a representative sample of those verbatims. We, we identify from there the moments that matter to the customers and what emotions are linked to those moments that matter. And then the next two sets of data we look at are the operational data that are aligned to the moments that matter. So that could be, know, let's say, usage on a banking app, as an example, um, and or usage of a mobile phone or renewals and so on and so forth. So we can, we can look at that operational data. We can, we can then also look at, if, if we're looking at a verbatim of mine as an example, well, okay, we know that Jonathan cared about these four things and felt this way about them and then subsequently went on to do this, you know, bought more, bought less, remained the same. And so what we're able to do from there is build machine learning models that say, okay, across the customer base, we know the moments that matter, that people care about, we know how they feel about them, and more importantly, we know the cumulative effect of experiences because, of course, one bad experience typically doesn't mean you're going to leave a company. One good experience typically doesn't mean you're going to be wildly ecstatic and buy more. So it's the cumulative impact of those experiences. And, and so from a machine, machine learning perspective, we can now say, OK, well, across this cohort of customers, we know that they've experienced this, this cumulative sequence of events. And we know that people who experience that typically feel this way and typically go on to do this, buy more, buy less, etc. Now, it, of course, it's not, uh, we, you know, we, we do put an emotional score on everybody, which changes day by day. But the thing here is not to try and have a segment of one, right? We're not trying to predict your emotion. We don't, we don't know if you woke up, kicked the cat, right? Tripped over the pavement, right? And just, you know, spilt coffee on your lap in the morning, right? I mean, yeah. what, all we can do is we can identify your likely emotional uh, feelings towards the organization based on the experiences you've had. And therefore, we can put you in a cohort of people that we say, okay, well, these people are most likely to buy, right? So we, we, we move very rapidly from the individual emotional score to moving people into cohorts or empographic segmentation, as we call it. Um, because as I say, there's so many uncontrollable factors that, you know, and, and companies do try and do it, right? They do try and say, oh, well, you know, Janice is in this emotional state and it's 300 different factors. I mean, honestly, it's nonsense. And it's nonsense because the, the uncontrollable factors, we never know what you've done <clears throat> and outside of your experience with the company. And also, frankly, 
what's an organization with 60 million customers going to do with a segment of one, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's impossible. So, so whilst personalization is a wonderful thing, right, um, it very often ends up being, you know, uh, you know impossible to, to action. And so this is targeting mainly B2C, because you mentioned Primarily. Peter. Yeah. 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 Primar primarily B2C. Um, so, so really any B2C organization at scale um, that, that works in a highly competitive environment um, and where um, customer lifetime value. So think things like insurance, telcos, those, those kind of um, yeah, th th those kind of organizations are sort of, you know, prime for us financial services, etc. Um, and I think also, uh, also um, industries where, you know, operational efficiency has become a hygiene factor. Because look, I, I know the amount of money telcos, FS, what have you spend on, you know, trying to answer a call 10 seconds quicker, or, you know, whatever operational variable they're trying to fix, right? Honestly, people don't care. Um, you know, we've done a bunch of work and a bunch of analysis on it. People don't really care to the extent. They just look at it as a hygiene factor. That if you answer my call in 10 seconds or 30 seconds, fine. Right, does my app work? Can I get what I want? Is it convenient? Will it go down sometimes? Yeah, all right. Yeah, but, the, but that's not a competitive differentiator anymore. It's how you treat people. And I think this is a common theme through sales, right? I mean, how you treat people is the competitive differentiator, not whether you're slightly quicker or slightly slower yeah do you actually solve my problem there Correct. and then yeah. and, and do you, <laughs> and do you under, yeah and do you understand me as an individual right yeah. do you treat me in a way i want to be treated do you understand where i am and you treat me accordingly yeah absolutely so what can b2b learn from this because b2c is a number of years <laughs> ahead of where b2b is in terms of uh, collecting data and being yeah. able to extract information, insights out of that, and then going on to using it. So what can the B2B environment learn from this? So I think there's, um, there's let's, let's sort of separate it. I think there's, a, there's what I would call a broad B2B customer experience context, and I'll talk about that. And then there's sort of a broad B2B sales slash customer success context. And I think they're, they're, they're aligned in many, many ways. But I think... Um, I, I, when, when you think about sales customer success organizations, and I've run both um, and, and obviously, you know, worked in the CX space for a long time, you know, it's, it's very, very siloed. And so I think the key thing really is, is trying to understand, you know, and it, it's some of the stuff I lecture on around customer lifecycle. You know, what, what is the customer lifecycle? Again, again, same thing, right? Which, which are the moments that matter? You know, so you sell something. Right. Onboarding is going to be key. Right. First use support is going to be, key. you know, they're pretty intuitive in terms of the areas you need to look at. Um, but I think the key thing is having a having a data set that you can look at across the life cycle, because if you think about the way most B2B organizations work, right, marketing will work in a silo and they'll build a funnel. Right. And they'll say the salespeople are rubbish because they don't close the leads. And then sales will say the marketing team are rubbish. And then, you know, the project management team will have a go at sales because they haven't held it yet, <laughs> handed it over properly. And everyone's siloed and everyone's on their, you know, individual leaders in individual spaces and actually what it needs is this sort of high level oversight across the customer life cycle and i think if you can start understanding um <clears throat> look what are the kpis that really matter along that customer life cycle 
you know, which, which are the areas that you really do need to invest in and why? So what, what is optimal along that life cycle? It doesn't necessarily need to be better. I mean, in some instances, you could be over-servicing in a, in a part of the life cycle that doesn't really matter. Um, but it really is having that consistent view and understanding what are the drivers of behavior in your customer base? So what drives somebody to churn? What, do you, what is the series of events that leads up to somebody leaving? in a B2B account, as an example. You know, who do you need to focus on? What are the service levels you need to provide? So I think it very much is this, um, it's this holistic view and people call it 360, whatever, but it's just, it, it's looking at things along life cycle and really understanding what are the optimal KPIs at the moments that matter and driving towards that. But you know, removing silos, I think is absolutely key. And most companies, unfortunately, are stuck in a world of silos. Yeah. And I added to that, um, certainly in the B2B world, stuck in a world of quarterly focusing, <laughs> yes. you know, like, and I know that you've got a lot to, to say about that in, in how that limits um, the creativity and ability to really service the customer. Yeah, and I think, um, look, I mean, I've, I, you know, just just for the sort of, you know, anyone who might listen to this, I've, I've been in the quarterly software sales world for more years than I care to remember, but some, you know, north, north of 20 years. Um, and, and each one of those primarily has been American companies, always quarterly driven. And, and I think there's, there's a few things that happen. And, and of course, you, you slightly start to get away from this when you're in your own startup, right? Um, but, you know, you can... You can see the behaviors, right? And they're the same in every organization. And, and it drives, um, in my opinion, anyway, it's not necessarily a popular opinion, but in my opinion, it drives bad behaviors from a sales team and also your customers because your customers are savvy, right? They do this with every software company or whichever company in the world, right? And they'll sit there and they'll go, yeah, not sure, not sure, not sure. And then with about three weeks to go, if they're going to buy it, they'll push you for a discount, but they'll order before the end of quarter, right? Yeah, you, you effectively teach your customers that there is no point. And I do it today, right? I never buy a car unless it's on the last day of the quarter. Why would I? Because I know if I walk in on the last day of the quarter, I'm going to get the best deal because the guy's desperate to make it money, <laughs> to make his number. So, um, you know, so, 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 you, so you teach your, your customers a way of operating. You also teach your sales teams a way of operating because you see this sort of, rather than have this nice sort of equilibrium of revenue coming in consistently, and, and certain organizations do achieve this, particularly at scale, but certainly in smaller organizations, you'll see this peak. You know, so how can all of a sudden everything close at the end of quarter, right? And then nothing close for two months. It's simply a learned behavior. And so, but equally on the other side of that, you know, I understand from a shareholder perspective, a venture capital perspective, why this is so important. But I do think that there are, you know, other ways that you can look at things. And I think that a lot of sort of sales processes and sales metrics are built around productivity. So whether you look at everywhere from right at the top of the funnel with marketing metrics, like what conversion rate, da, 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 you know, you look at the sales guy, right? How many meetings, you know, all the way through. All right. And it's a it's a very standard way of doing it. Right. I mean, we've all we've all seen it. You know, we need 2000, you know, um, 2000 leads to get 100 prospects to get 10 sales. Da, da, da. And of course, it's all that is productivity led, whereas actually it should be very much outcome focused, in my opinion. And I think that there are you know, some very, very good sales processes out there that, you know, can be 
used pretty much for any B2B sales world, but, but the focus on buyer behavior. So, so have we moved the buyer from this position to the next position that we know will progress them towards a sale? Do, have we actually taken the time, and sadly not many people do this, have we actually taken the time to understand how people want to buy from us? And if we understand how people want to buy from us, now we know the behaviors that indicate that they're moving towards a sale. And you give yourself the time to answer those questions. Um, so I think it's, um, yeah, you know, Corsely has a lot to answer for. Um, I think VCs have a lot to answer for because, you know, it doesn't actually drive sustainable long-term behavior and certainly impacts customer lifetime value, right? I mean, I think if you're, if you're building an environment in a sales process that is based on trust, mutual respect, driving business outcomes for a customer, by definition, the win for the company is that customer lifetime value increases, your relationships increase. Um, and, and ultimately, we're in a relationship business. You know, um, people try and over overcomplicate it. And uh, you and I were talking a little earlier, right? Sale, sales is simple, right? It's not easy, but it is simple. And I think people try and overcomplicate it a lot. And um, if you actually take a step back, do some proper planning, some research, just speak to your customers, right? Ask them, right? How do they want to buy, right? And, and you'll soon, if you speak to enough of them, you'll soon figure out what your sales process is and what you need to help them along there, that line. I think that's great advice. You know, ask your customers, you know, uh, many salespeople I, I meet do not understand. And this is, you know, a complex sale. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a big ticket customer, high value. But if you ask them the uh, details of the customer's buying process, there are so many gaps. If you, oh, yeah. if you start to plot out, well, this is what I do, um, scale your sales framework, plot out the value of the relationships you have with the decision-making group, all of the, the key influences on that decision, and you plot out you'll find that there's massive gaps and you wonder why after a whole year of nurturing that sale, it suddenly disappears and you it didn't even know about it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and also, you know, and, and, and perhaps it is just, you know, maybe it's a bit grumpy old man of me, but I think, you know, people, people just don't pick up the phone, right? I think people are so embedded and wedded to the the metrics and social media. I mean, I get approached, you know, I'm sure like you do, right? A thousand times a day, you have, oh, I can improve your LinkedIn conversions. And I'm like, no, look, I'll just pick up the phone, thanks. Um, because you know what? If I know you and I know, you know, what's happening in your life, you know, and it's back to empathy again, right? You know, if I understand you as an individual, and I build a relationship with you as an individual, out of mutual respect, if something's going wrong, you'll tell me. You know, and, and I think you also need to be big enough that it's always trying to get away from being the sales guy, right? You know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, you're going to lose a lot more than you ever win. And um, don't get too hung up on it. And also don't be afraid of walking away from a deal that's not right for a customer. It's yeah. hard to do when you've got a number. I know it is. But trust me, it'll come back tenfold in the future. I mean, two, two of my board members in this company are, are customers, one from 20 years ago and one from 10 years ago. Yeah. Right? yeah, they're the relationships you want to build, right? Um, that, you know, when you go to another company, that these people you can pick up the phone to, your network is invaluable. And you build that network by 
being empathetic and doing the right thing by people. And I think sometimes that gets lost. Yes, I think so. I mean, I was just going to ask you, you know, how do you balance? So there's all of this data and, and uh, companies are fighting to get insights out of the data. And we've also got the cell stack, which is, you know, we're talking about complication. We're actually yeah, creating yeah. a whole department just to manage the sales stack, <laughs> you know, sales operation. I mean, how crazy is that, that you're creating a department to manage that complexity? No. Strip out the complexity, you know? <laughs> and then um, we've got the, so we have the insights and then we've got the relationship side, which is, absolutely key is never um you know uh it's so important so in an organization how do you balance those things to make sure that you have got the the right amount of of both how does that happen yeah well i, th I think i think you need to look at it as what what are the insights that each individual needs at different levels of the organization right so so in a leadership position by definition right you can't possibly know you know you've got a team of 50 salespeople. you cannot know every deal right you might know the two or three that you're getting pulled into the really big ones but um you know, you need those insights. And, and that's where metrics, and, I, and I'm by no means anti-metric, right? I am a huge metrics fan, but I think they've got to be sensible metrics and they've got to be built around outcomes, not productivity, right? It's very, very easy to be busy, <laughs> but busy doesn't always lead to results. And so, you know, you, you need the right set of insights that that you know are going to be key indicators towards the results it goes back to what we were saying earlier right what are the things that really matter um then i think you need to think very carefully as that cascades down the line right well what does everyone else need to see right what does the rvp need to see what does the sales director need to see what does the rep need to see um and i think and by definition as you move down that line the information becomes more granular and i and i think um you know, you need to, uh, again, back to sales process, right? Because if you are understanding, you know, what moves client behavior or prospect behavior, then your metrics become very, very different. And, and also most importantly, your QBRs, your coaching sessions, your pipeline sessions become very, very different as well. Because now you're not just saying, well, okay, what coverage have you got in your pipeline, right? And what's your commit and blah, blah, blah. You're now having the conversation of, right, okay, well, let's go through each deal, right? And, and in these deals, the prospect is at this stage. Now, what is it specifically we need to do to move them from here to here, right? Or qualify them out. Because frankly, the best salespeople I know, right, are the best qualifiers. Um, and so half of what you're trying to do in the sales process is, is scale qualification, frankly. Um, so, you know, and again, it's back to walking away from deals that aren't going to count. Um, so, so I think, um, you know, you really need to have high level insights for the executives, but bring them back down to the sales process, which drives behavior in the prospects helps you understand very clearly the exact steps you need to take. And then your coaching sessions, your pipeline sessions become far more valuable as opposed to, right, Jonathan, what's your commit for this quarter? Which is typically the pipeline session. And then three weeks ago, when Jonathan's dropped three quarters of his commit, well, you need to find something, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and we've all been in those. <clears throat> we've all been guilty of it. And we've all held those pipeline sessions. And honestly, they're a waste of time, right? You'd be better off just all going home and having a cup of tea, frankly. Um, but 
that's <laughs> I just think there are better ways of doing it than traditionally. But again, but a lot of that also comes back to you know, the best sales guys are normally promoted sales director. They never trained how to be a sales director. I never was, right? You're a good sales guy, you get promoted, right? And then you make your number, you get promoted. And nobody thinks about what training is needed because they're very, very different skill sets. And very often people don't take the time to put proper processes in place um, and, and adhere to them. And of yeah. course, it's, it's difficult. It's a culture change. Nobody likes it. Salespeople particularly don't like it, but I think if they can see the results at the back end, then it's worth it. So talking about a, a, a culture change, mm. tell me uh, about your view on diversity in, in sales, because as you say, you know, you do your numbers, you get promoted up. You yeah. haven't really got the training. Who are you going to recruit more people like you? And that's yeah. the problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, you, and you're absolutely right. I mean, diversity is, I mean, you know, I, I am probably the worst person in the world to be talking about diversity because you can, I'm the middle-aged white guy, right? Um, but I, I think that, um, and, and, and also the, the other reason is, because of course I've been out of what I call the mass recruitment for probably five or six years now, but I haven't been in startups. But I think what, what I particularly noticed was, so the, so the last company we had that was at scale was when I think about sort of ethnic diversity, I mean, one of the joys of being in London is, you know, it is a glorious mixing pot and gloriously diverse. And so we have this really odd situation in our office where we probably have 35 people, I guess. I was one of two English people in the office, right? And it was this, this incredible mix of everyone from Africa, US, Canada, India, um, yeah, Italy, every, everywhere in between, right? So it was just a, it was a great mix of both gender and ethnic diversity. And, and I think my, my biggest thing with diversity is diversity of thinking, actually, because I think, um, you know, I mean, and you, you, could, you could look at a government, okay, and you can say, okay, right, we want ethnic diversity in the government. That's great. Now, the reality is that most of those people will have been to Oxbridge or Eton and will still be of exactly the same way of thinking as everyone else in the government. And so I think within organisations, diversity of thinking and background to me is, is absolutely critical. So, you know, do you need some incredibly bright people doing your data science? Absolutely. Right. Do I want somebody who has you know, come from an underprivileged part of London or a, you know, name your major city, right, bringing their ideas into the organisation? Because they'll see things in a very, very different way to the guy who went to Oxbridge. You know, I, I didn't go to university, so I was that kind of, you know, kid who came in and, you know, diversity of thinking. Yeah, you absolutely have. And certainly when I did it, you had to fight probably 10 times as hard as if I, you know, had a good university degree. But I, but I do think the diversity of thinking, when I look at the group within Anthrolytics at the moment, and it's this weird mix of, you know, people like me who don't have, you know, a degree, we've got PhDs, we've got you know, real diversity of background. And, it, and that's fascinating to me because we all see things very, very differently. But I, th I think my biggest thing was I didn't notice um, from a sales perspective, I didn't notice a challenge with ethnic diversity. What I noticed was gender diversity was a real problem. And so, you know, we had a graduate um, scheme with SDRs. And, and at that point, um, we probably had a 50-50 mix, male to female, 
now across the entire organization it was it was very gender and ethnic diverse anyway right so we didn't we didn't have a broad problem but if i just have a look at the the sort of microcosm of the sales team it was incredibly easy to have a 50 50 mix of graduates straight out of uni bang into sales and it was great then what you noticed was as I, I, look, and you would align it to when families start, right? As families started, then that mix went right the way down and it became almost entirely male focused to the extent that, you know, the, the recruiter I've known for years, I, you know, I, I was on the phone to him saying, look, we need women because honestly, the best salespeople, the two best salespeople I've ever known are, are women, right? And they're incredible individuals and just, I mean, blow me away in terms of sales capability. but, you know, I can't keep up with them, but they are... Um, and so you kind of look at this and think, well, so, so what's going wrong here? And, and I think, um, look, and a lot's changed again over the last five years, but, um, you know, my wife is senior in a software firm, you know, and now certainly it's easier for her to progress. She certainly had to fight in the early days. I mean, undoubtedly way more than, than a male did to be heard, to be promoted and so on and so forth. So I, I think we're starting to see this go away. Um, I think with a lot of, acceptance of the fact of look so somebody goes on maternity leave big deal right um you know somebody's got a kid at home and i think actually the pandemic's going to be a really interesting test because of course now we're so used to everyone working from home mm. it actually doesn't make any difference we know it doesn't make any difference right there are very very few firms whose industries have broadly not been impacted by covid and a lot of software has actually taken off um are suddenly looking at it going well does it really matter if somebody runs the kids to school? You know, I look, honestly, I always did. I was a single dad for a while, right? Mm. Thursdays and Fridays, I was, yeah, everyone in the company knew, all right? I'd, I take Emily to school, that's it. You know, there's no discussion point, right? You're not, <laughs> don't put a call in my diary for 3.30 because I ain't going to be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Um, and, but I think that is a lot more accepted now, certainly than it was 10 years ago. So I really struggled with gender diversity and trying to hold on to people as they went through that stage of their life, um, which is, uh, you know, and it's, it, it's sad and it wasn't, um, but I, I, you know, I, I just hope things have changed now. I really do. And I think, you know, they're, they're always upside in everything. And I think one of the big upsides of the pandemic is going to be this realization that actually it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you, you know, do two hours work at six, spend a couple of hours with the kids. Um, it just doesn't matter. Right, especially yeah. in a global economy you know the time zones and things it's, it's yeah. i think one thing companies have learned is allowing people to be responsible for their own di diaries yeah. and treating them like adults no as and i think you're absolutely right that is a them. huge thing it's a yeah. huge thing. Yeah. um and and i think you know and, and also you know and, and this is where you know social media in many ways is a terrible thing but actually when it comes to awareness i think it's a wonderful thing you know, because, you know, the amount I've learned over the last four or five years um, and also people aren't afraid to stand up anymore. You know, and this is also back to, you know, back to behavior, back to empathy, the way all of our thinking's changed. Of like, Well, I'm not actually I don't need to work for a company like that. And so I think, you know, ultimately companies who don't move with the times. Right. Um, and don't provide equal opportunity. are going to find themselves without any staff very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And unfortunately, you know, I'm going to have to get you on again because I know I did say at the beginning to you, our problem is going to be is, we, you know, <laughs> have to get you in, 
you're <laughs> such an interesting person. So how can listeners get hold of you, Jonathan? Uh, so uh, either on LinkedIn, so Jonathan Hawkins Anthrolytics on LinkedIn. So you just do a search for me, you'll find me there. My email address is uh, Jonathan, which is J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at anthrolytics.io. Um, so yeah, just drop me an email if anyone wants to chat. Always very, very happy to network and kick around ideas. So. Brilliant. Well, thank you for being a guest on Scale Your Sales podcast, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Lovely. Thanks, Janice. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.